The reading is in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, we thank you for this word. And we ask you, Lord, to open our ears and uh, please guide my lips as we uh, learn today. And we honor you, Father, and honor Christ. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. See, if you fall fall asleep, I'll just signal Tom and he'll do that again. So, better be careful. The... uh, the title of the sermon actually is correct in the in the bulletin. Why did Jesus have to die? I thought I'd mailed to Mike. Why did Jesus die? And so I changed all my notes to reflect that. So the, it's correct in the bulletin. Why did Jesus have to die? Um, now you're probably going to be like Mike did whenever I told him the title. Oh, okay. You know, pretty basic. You're thinking uh, Jesus died to save his people from their sins, right? This is true, but it's not the answer to my question. That's a good answer, and it's a true answer, and it's in our text. But there is another answer in our text that's given first. But we'll get to that later. First, what I want to do is recap what Paul has written up till now. We start at Romans 3.21 here, and so what I want to do is kind of recap very quickly from Romans 1.1. To this point, he begins with an introduction. Paul has never been to Rome. And so this is a longer introduction than most of his letters. But he the introduction takes us all the way up through verse 15. Then he gives us a little glimpse of what this whole letter is about. And that's in verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So intro, sneak peek at the whole letter. Now he goes into this elaborate uh, discussion on sin. And it starts at verse 18 and it continues all the way up to uh, Romans 3.20 just prior to the text that I read. And these are just a few of the excerpts from it. Uh, They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I, as I read this, and I think I've thought about this for a long time, But as I read what Paul has written here, I just can't get away from the image of a courtroom. Paul is God's prosecutor against mankind. 
God is the plaintiff. All man is the defendant. And then Paul makes this argument, starting at verse 18. And he sweeps through to 320. And let me read what I consider as he's getting to his closing arguments in uh, 310. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And let me pause there. Uh, A lot of us have probably heard that thing, you know, you better be careful when you say all and never and none and all those words, all those, you know, words that are are, uh, difficult to get around. So if you make a statement with those words, you kind of should be able to back them up because you're making these blanket statements. And I've learned by being a husband that you really don't want to make blanket statements if you can't back them up. Because, and I still do it sometimes. And as soon as I've said it, I thought, oh, there I go again. So be careful. Paul is careful. And he uses the, the, the universal, uh, 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 always here, none, 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 none. I don't think he's making any bones about it. There are none righteous. Then the closing statement ends with these words. And it's these words that Paul wants ringing in your ears. If you're a prosecuting attorney and you've had your chance to speak, by the time you pause and end your talk, you have all that time to slowly walk back. I mean, anybody that's read a you know, novel knows this. You have all that time to walk back to your seat while these words are ringing in the ears. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therein, by the, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what Paul says. And now you have a few seconds of silence as he walks to his seat. But. Paul has slammed the door on people. He has convicted us all of sin and he slammed the door. And then he uses this word. But. The first verse of the section that I read that we're going to cover today. But now. I was curious about this word. But. And so I uh, expected to be able to search it in my online the uh, Bible gateway. And yet I couldn't because it's one of the 51 words that are too common to be searched. Like you and yours and the and a and an. But is one of those words. It's one of those 51 words. And so I had to do it a little more manually. Uh, so I had to load all Romans 1 through 16 into my buffer and then go through searching for but and counting them. Bup, 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 bup. 128 of them, just in Romans, 128 just in Romans. That's an average of eight per chapter. And uh, I would argue that this is one of the most important buts in Romans, if not all of Scripture. It's a very important word. I was thinking about but. How can I explain it? Um, I watched uh, Pursuit of Happiness last year, and he's resolving a Rubik's Cube for this. Uh, guy in the back of his limo while he's driving 
and, and he feels he has until this guy gets to his office to solve this thing. And every time you flip a Rubik's Cube, you're kind of thinking, but, you know, but, but, but. If I do this, but that, but that. And so a verbal argument, when you're presenting one, is kind of like that. It's kind of like you're flipping a Rubik's Cube around in your mind, and, and you're saying, oh, wait a minute, I have to qualify this, have to qualify that, have to say this. So you don't want to forget things. And it's so easy to be taken out of context. People don't pay attention to when you say but. And they just forget to quote that part whenever they quote you in some magazine article or some radio show. And so it's easy to be misunderstood, but that's what the but is for. The but is to do that. The but is to qualify or narrow statements. A long time ago, I watched a video with R.C. Sproul, and he commented on the fact that if it is the, and I think I shared this once, but he said if it's the woman's prerogative to change her mind, it's the theologian's prerogative to narrow his distinguishing characteristics. It's his, it's his uh, uh, part of his trade in order to distinguish between thoughts and words. And that's what these things do. That's what this but does. So now, there are two kinds of but, generally. There are good buts and there are bad buts. There are some neutral, but not many. This is a really good one. And let me read these two verses here. Uh, again, Romans uh, 3:21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who, and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Now this is not just a good but. This is a glorious but. This is what these people locked up in this prison, us, all of these people, because... Paul's argument began with natural revelation, kind of like creation, and he condemns us. He condemns us through creation. Our creation itself condemns us for our unbelief. Our actions condemn us. Our consciences condemn us. The law and the prophets condemn us. All of these things condemn us into guilt and shame and the sin of guilt. So, it reminds me of some of these action-adventure movies where, uh, and, and like maybe The Mummy or some of those like that, where they, they've just done something stupid. They always have to do something stupid, but, you know, these are the good people, so they can't all die. It's only the bad people that die when they do the stupid things. But so they've done something stupid, and suddenly all the doors start clanging shut. And that's what happens up till Romans 3.20. Paul is slamming, slamming, slamming doors shut. All of them go shut. Yet, then there's a way out. They find a way out. There must be a way out. And Paul introduces this way out. Paul has shut up everyone in this prison. Then he says, but. Now, let me read verse 21 again. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. How were people saved prior to the coming of Christ? How were people saved prior to Christ's coming? Um, by faith. It's the same. Uh, from Adam and Eve all the way up to uh, Anna and Simeon in the temple. All these people, they're all saved by faith, faith in God. And yet this is a faith, just as the definition in Hebrews about faith being that which we cannot see, the same thing is true for them. Creation is against them. Their consciences are against them. Their friends and family are against them. 
Their own actions are against them, and the law is against them. All of them judge us and leave us wanting. And so just like that poor publican, we are left only to plead for mercy. And that is how all people in the Old Testament era were saved. They all had to plead for mercy. They knew they didn't deserve to be saved. They couldn't stand there like the Pharisees and say, Oh, look at me. I'm wonderful. I do all these wonderful things. I deserve to get in. Well, that guy doesn't, you know, poor publican. But so that's the way this works. And I think it's characterized well in Job 19. Job uh, gives this uh, faith that is just from his heart in Job 19. In Job 19, verses 25 to 27, he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So this is the hope that Paul has given to the readers, to the Romans. He shut everybody up in sin and then said, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. And he's going to open this up, open up this mechanism of salvation for people. And what I'm going to do is turn back to Romans and explore verses 24 and 25 of our text. And let me read that again. It's kind of hard because this is all big run-on sentence, but I'll just start at 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, the main thing there I wanted to cover was being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation. There are five words there. I'll just give a brief kind of thumbnail definition of these. First word is justified. Being justified. And so being justified means to be declared righteous. So if you were on trial for something and you have been justified, that means you have been declared not guilty. You're not guilty of what that, that is. And the, the law has no hold on you anymore. You're free to go. So you're free from condemnation. Freely, being justified freely, and so that means you don't even have to pay court costs. You're out of there. You just walk away. There, there's no cost to you at all. No effort, no, no cost. Being justified freely by His grace. And grace is God's unmerited favor. Remember, God's riches at Christ's expense. And redemption. By His grace, through the redemption this redemption is a ransom because we have been captured by somebody to do his will. Remember, Paul told Timothy that we are to rebuke people kindly because they have been captured by Satan to do his will. And so Christ ransomed us from one that captured us. He paid the ransom for us. And the last word is in the next verse, and that is whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies. 
And so if you think about all the Old Testament sacrifices, they never really satisfied, never fully. Propitiatory sacrifice is one that fully satisfies. Now, I'm going to rephrase what I've just read in a different way and read it a couple times. By an unearned act of God's mercy, we are declared righteous. Jesus paid our ransom price through the only means possible by sacrificing himself. So let me read that again. By an unearned act of God's mercy, we are declared righteous. Jesus paid our ransom price through the only means possible, the sacrifice of himself. Now, we began with that question that I asked. Why did Jesus have to die? And I told you that the answer that I was looking for was not to pay for our sins. There is a different answer in this text. Why did Jesus die? Yes, salvation was made possible by his death. Salvation was an express purpose of his death, and it was accomplished by his death, but there's another reason. We'll read the last two verses. Whom God set forth, and so this is Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So why did Jesus die? to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Jesus died to demonstrate that God was righteous. And in, if you look at 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, that God the Father might be just. And then we go on to and the justifier. That's the second. But the first is just, that God might be seen as just. Now, why did Jesus die? That God would be just. Not that God might just be seen as just, but that God would be just. So, Jesus died so that God would be just. Now, why would that have to happen? Why would people think God is unjust? And it answers right here. It's the second part of verse 25. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. God demonstrated his righteousness because he had to overcome the unbelief of people that saw him passing over sins. They were essentially thinking in their heart, your God is not righteous. Your God is showing favoritism. Your God is uh, just like all these other gods. Your God really isn't fair. Your God isn't, isn't holy. So all of the sins from the day of creation that had been passed over had to be accounted for. Uh, you know, uh, when uh, Scott prayed, I was thinking, ooh, this is like an appetizer for the sermon. He talked about, you know, that act, that initial act of sin, right from that point when God clothed Adam and Eve in the skins. Right from that point, God was beginning to seem unrighteous. And what does that mean, that he was seeming unrighteous? He was not judging sin, as he said he would. And now, there is a verse that says that God will cast sin away from us, as far as east is from west as far away from us. God isn't casting it away from himself. God can't just eliminate space junk. He can't shoot it off into you know, the end of the universe. He must deal with it. He, he dealt with it for us, but yet he still had to deal with it for himself to be shown as just, to be righteous. Now, let me run through some of these sins. I mean, we kind of all know what they are, but right from Adam and Eve, disobedience, idolatry, uh, Adam chose his wife as opposed to God. Murder, 
They murdered themselves. It was suicide as well as all their posterity. And then God made them the coverings, the animal skins. And so God, by that action, was postponing the inevitable. He had already made his decision as to what's going on. And instead of judging it, at that point, no, his forbearance, God's mercy, prevailed. Cain. Cain was envious of Abel. He was covetous of Abel's relationship with God. He murdered him. And yet, God didn't execute Cain for that murder. And yet, then he institutes civil law for us, and he tells us we should execute murderers such as that. Well, you didn't. Why should we if you didn't? This seems kind of unfair. Then Noah, the people leading up to that, uh, God was so tired of dealing with them that he limited their lifespan. There is a verse that uh, God limits their lifespan to 120 years, even prior to the flood. God is, is dealing with sin and, and the growth of sin via these methods. So then, when that didn't uh, really have enough time to take effect, he went ahead and eliminated the whole earth, the whole earthly population, and yet saved those eight people. Then the flood uh, dissipates, and people right away run to build Babel. And people are refusing to do what God had commanded them to do. And so God confused the languages, and he spread the people out. And then we come into the whole patriarchal era. And then you've pretty much got the whole spectrum of sins, uh, just between Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons. I mean, you know, we see all that. And we had Lot with the incest, and, and it's just, you know, every sin imaginable. And even with Moses, a man who loved God, you know, uh, Moses and David, it's hard to think of two being nearer to God's heart. And yet even Moses, he was fearful of man. He didn't circumcise his sons, as we talked about. He was disobedient, and he hit the rock the second time when God told him not to. So uh, the sacrificial system was formed within Judaism under Moses. Again, to control sin, to try to dampen the effects of sin in this world. And then we go on to the kings and... and uh, King David with the adultery and the murder. But uh, all of this kind of reveals a, a, a way that God relates to man and a way that God is providing mechanisms to deal with this mountain of sin that is accumulating. And it must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. So God's forbearance cost him. Acts 17.30, I, I love this phrase in the King James, but it says that in those times God winked at. He's talking about all the sins that have been looked over by God. And, and it isn't the winking that we know of winking, you know, but it is in all other modern translations, it's translated overlooked. God overlooked those sins. But then Paul goes on to say, but now he is making an account of those sins. So those sins are being tallied up. Now, earlier, you can't help but remember that I talked about how uh, Paul had left all these people trapped in the prison of guilt and shame in Romans 3.20 before he'd gone on. So there was a problem. There was a people problem. We had a problem. Mankind had a problem. We were caught up in this. So Paul had shut everyone up in that prison cell of guilt. And then that but is the key to the prison cell. That but lets people get out of that prison cell. So mankind had this problem, and that but is the key that opened it. But God also had a problem. And God resolved his problem at that point, too. And that's why I said that in precedence order, God's problem takes precedence in our text, as I went earlier. God demonstrates his righteousness. Jesus had to die to demonstrate God's righteousness. And it made possible the salvation of men. But uh, 
Let me read uh, Romans 3.23. We all know the definition for sin, or at least most of us probably know the definition for sin in the catechism. You know, sin is a transgression of or lack of conformity to God's law. But look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our catechism definition doesn't use the word glory. But yet, falling short of the glory of God is falling short of being able to keep his law perfectly. But is it more? Is there a sense in which talking about the glory of God and us not honoring that, falling short of it, is something a little bit different? Not, not likely, but it focuses on God. Our definition kind of focuses on us. But this definition, falling short of the glory of God, focuses on God. In other words, all creation is to glorify God. And not just a little bit, not just 99.9%, 100%. And so anytime sin comes into the picture, you're way below 100%. You, you, you've begun drop, dropping drastically in your ability to glorify God. So God's forbearance in looking over this sin was cheating himself. It was cheating God. It was tolerating sin. It was not treating God with the glory he deserved. Every time we sin, we do that. Every time we sin, it's a tiring of God. It's a weariness of God. We don't want to glorify God when we sin. We want to escape God for the most part. We want to be away from him to sin. That's why we kind of go hide. That's, I remember when uh, my little nephew back home, you know, 25 years ago, anytime we were trying to potty train him, when he was disappeared for a few minutes, you know what he was doing. I mean, you know, you just want to get away from the crowd when you want to go take care of business. Now, people in Scripture often cry out for justice. Um, I, just this week, I, I only picked one. There, there are innumerable I could pick. But uh, in Habakkuk, and I won't bother turning there. I have it written down. But in Habakkuk, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk cries out, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. So we see the injustice that's going on in the world, and we cry out to God because of it. And yet, Scripture speaks of God's mercy. God is lenient. We see what had happened with Nineveh, with Jonah having to go there. And then these people are saved, and Jonah's bitter about it. He's, he's uh, very uh, upset that God saves these people. I knew this would happen, God. I told you this would happen, God. But yet, that's what God wanted to happen. And he wanted Jonah to feel better about it. You know, this is his mercy at work. But Jonah didn't want mercy. These people are evil. I want you to destroy them, God. I'm just going to sit up here on this hill until they get evil again, and I'm going to watch you zap them. So uh, Psalm 103 is kind of another, another angle on this. Psalm 103, uh, verses 8 to 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. We know this. We appreciate this. It's the other guy we want judged for his sins. You know, we want him to be made uh, 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 right with God on this. But yet we always judge on a curve. We want to be easy on ourselves and those we love, and we want those other idiots to be you know, judged and, and I think I can't help but think of this when it comes to driving. Uh, uh, my my uh, my manager, two levels up from me, she's so sweet. I mean, she's really a nice lady, total heathen, 
but yet, as, as heathen go, she's a very nice lady. And she's just so cute. She's, she's like probably 4'10", and uh, she's about my age. But she was talking about driving to work one day, and she had to go pay a ticket because they got her going 70 on Dodge. And, and, uh, and, I just, and I just thought to myself, I know people like her that I see going 70 on Dodge. It's just as soon as they hit Dodge, whoo, left lane, whoo, you know, and if you're in her way, just get out. But, and so I'm thinking, okay, normally I think of those people as really, really, really jerks. And yet I think, okay, I know her. I know she's different than that. I know I shouldn't be judging her so harshly. And so I think, okay, now I just have to imagine that she's the one that's behind the wheel of all those vehicles that I see out there doing that to me or to other people. And, and it helps. It helps me to think about it in terms of putting a person in that seat as opposed to some evil demon from hell that I wish would <laughs> crash into the abutment. So now, Second uh, Samuel is another one. Second Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12, and this is where Nathan confronts King David. Uh, David had been in that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He's killed Uriah the Hittite. He's now waiting because Bathsheba obviously is having some issues with this baby perhaps, but, but David is totally resistant to God. And Nathan confronts him. He tells the story about the, the, babe, you know, the little sheep and the man who wants the king who wants the guy, and David gets all angry, and then Nathan says, you are that man. And Nathan says this, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, now listen. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Put away your sin. Where is he putting this sin? You know? I think there's just like a big mountain of sin that God is putting away. It's putting away from us. But like I said, God had to deal with it. It, it, is, it is a stench in his nostrils. It's like, it's like bigger than the biggest rubbish heap that we hear of in these, like Mexico City or something. It, it's, it's just huge and it's a problem. But yet we, of course, being just interested in, you know, the royal me, um, I'm just thankful that, yeah, I'm, I'm free from this. I don't have to worry about this. It's gone. And I might have a little bit of conscience twinges, but yet I'm just so thankful that it's gone. But yet it's real. It exists. God has to deal with that. So now, uh, Psalm 103.12, I quoted earlier, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But God, like I said earlier, God removed them from us, not from him. God's glory was being despised by these sinners, and rather than vindicating his glory by slaying us, he vindicates his glory by slaying his son. He had to do one of the two. And so that's in the eternal plan of God, that's what he did. He slayed his son for that purpose. In the counsel of God in eternity past, before time began, God purposed to glorify himself in the way that we have seen expanded here in Romans. I, I, there is a righteousness apart from the law. That in itself is very striking. A righteousness apart from the law. I think of that life game where you spin the wheel and you take the two paths. 
and you have the short path and the long path. Well, there was one path for us, and it was, got all walled up. We couldn't get anywhere. We're, we're playing life, but there's no way to get to heaven. There's no way to get beyond this. And so only Christ could scale that for us, and he did so. Now, I still have a question, though, and, uh, or, or something that I kind of want to share with you, and that is this. Uh, why didn't God execute Cain for killing Abel? Um, I would have liked that. It just seems more fair to me. But I know all sin deserves punishment, and yet this murder seems so petty, so so heinous. And it comes so early. I mean, it's only the four people on earth, and one of them has killed the other. And so, see, I wanted Cain to die for murdering Abel. It's just unjust that he doesn't. And yet, it's also unjust that Adam and Eve lived after having performed this act of disobedience. In other words, that's the one that's key. Eating a piece of fruit that you weren't supposed to led to Cain killing Abel. And so from our human perspective, we judge it in terms of the severity of that act. It's like, he murdered him. That seems more bad to me. But yet over here, God is saying, well, no, that came from this. This was the worst of the two. And so when he clothed Adam and Eve with those uh, skins, he knew what was happening, of course. Adam and Eve hadn't a clue, but he saw that evil would spread. He saw that evil would fill the earth, and it all came from that simple act of disobedience. So it was Adam and Eve's sin that set us on this path. It wasn't Cain's sin. God is long-suffering. Jesus said that God sends his reign on the just and the unjust, and he then commands us to do the same. We are to emulate him in this. We are to treat people better than they deserve. Because by doing that, we are acknowledging that we deserve to be treated badly as well. So when we treat other people better than they deserve, we are acknowledging ourselves to be sons of our Father in Heaven. Uh, William Gladstone is pri- or was a Prime Minister of Great Britain in the 1800s, and he's reputed to have said this. I don't know if it's true. I don't think anybody does, but he said, justice delayed is justice denied. Justice delayed is justice denied. So the question I have for you, is that true? Is that true here? God has delayed an awful lot of justice. And so is God being unfair because he does that? I would have to say no, because if he's being unfair, he's being sinful, and God can't be sinful. And so we know the answer. We just need to think through how we get to the answer. How do we make it work? Well, we, I would say yes. As if we're jurists, if we're, if we're people on this earth, and we are delaying justice for our own reasons, yeah, there's probably sin involved in that. Or at least we should build better systems that would bring fairness to people more, more quickly. But God, the sole purpose behind this is what? It's given in Second Peter 3.9. Peter writes, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's Waiting, God's refusal to judge is all a part of his plan and it's balanced by his mercy. So all of God's patience with sin is because of his mercy and his forbearance of sin. God's dealing with the mountain of sin and Christ's blood has covered that. But yet, isn't there also another mountain of sin that's building up that will never be covered over by the blood of Christ? And 
isn't the sin that is yet uh, held against a sinner who will one day convert to God, isn't that also not covered by the blood of Christ? So see, even though Christ has died, even though he has paid the penalty for the sins of the elect, there is still sin to be dealt with. And so there is this time that God takes, this patience and mercy, and the tares grow up with the wheat, but yet there will be a reckoning. Uh, The death of Christ proves not only the righteousness of God, but his love of us. And we have to tolerate injustice on the earth because of love, because of God's love for us. We need to tolerate it in others who we don't think deserve it. And yet, you know, we are secondary in this argument. God uh, is the one that knows the score. So now, it would have been consistent with his justice to have punished us, to have killed us, but instead he punished his son. And Job's words, which I read earlier, will be fulfilled. And these are them. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see God, how my heart yearns within me for that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the power of your word to convict people of their sin. Uh, Lord, our sin has shut us up in these cells, and yet Christ's blood has paid the ransom, has given us the key to open that cell. So we pray, Lord, that uh, you would, uh, by the power of your Spirit ministering in hearts, would you please uh, cause us to see that our cell door is open and we are free to leave the sin and shame of sin, the guilt of it, the uh, oppressiveness of it, the stench of it. We thank you, Lord, that you can tolerate so much that through your forbearance you Uh, have waited all these thousands of years while uh, seeing all of this evil go on and on and on and on. And Lord, it bothers you so much more than us. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would uh, minister in our hearts, that we would be patient as you are patient, that we would accept wrong as you accept wrong, that we would uh, cry out for justice, Lord, but be patient as we wait for it. We ask you to be with us now to uh, bless the remainder of the service to your glory in Christ's name. Amen.